0: We are going to uh, finish the chapter tonight, so that is good timing because next Wednesday we will not have service because we have a Good Friday service next week. Okay? So instead of Wednesday evening next week, it will be Good Friday, and we'll be doing the Lord's Supper uh, at that Good Friday service. So uh, shift your schedule a little bit and, uh, and be here on Good Friday. I, I do like uh, being able to address Resurrection Weekend, as it were, in that way. Uh, Because as a preacher, to to preach one sermon and talk about the the crucifixion and the resurrection, that's a lot of information. I know I give you a lot of information anyway. Just imagine if I had to get both of those things into one sermon. So it really allows us to to think about the sacrifice, the atonement, the, resurre- or the the crucifixion of our Savior on Friday, and to come in on Sunday and celebrate the glorious resurrection. So that's a, that's a great way to think about the week. And hopefully next week, you, that's on your mind. Think of, I mean, this Sunday would be Palm Sunday. That's the triumphal entry. That's Jesus returning to his city and giving us kind of a preview of what's going to happen when he returns again. So uh, be praying about that, be reading about that, be thinking about that next week, because it is... Uh, it's the most important holiday in our in our faith. So, uh, and maybe a better way, holy day. Let's call it that. That's where holiday comes from, but that's what it is. All right, 1 Timothy chapter three, and what we have here in just these three verses is uh, what we might call a bridge passage. Okay, so if we were if we were mapping out the letter of 1 Timothy, uh, section one was. Well, if we take out the introduction or, or include that there, section one is verses one through seventeen of chapter one, and then Paul gave us a bridge verse in verses eighteen to 20, or passage, I guess. And then two one to three thirteen was section two. He's going to give us another bridge verse. We will get to section 3 in two weeks when we start chapter 4. In the first chapter, you might remember that Paul was explaining the task ahead of Timothy in Ephesus, and then he ends that passage with some encouragement. He's going to do the same thing here, but let me remind you, after verse 17 in chapter 1, Paul wrote this command I entrust to you Timothy my son in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you fight the good fight keeping faith and a good conscience. So he tells him these are the things you're going to have to deal with now Timothy you can do this you've you've been brought here for a reason fight the good fight uh, and now he's going to do the same thing again. Um, In chapter 4, when we get to section 3 of the letter, Paul's going to really dive into the false teaching that is plaguing Ephesus uh, directly, and he's going to talk about a practical approach. Here's what needs to be done about these specific false teachings. We've we've heard about the false teaching going on, but we're going to get specifics when we get to chapter 4. So let's read our text for tonight. We'll see what Paul has for us. So starting in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 3. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." So we start with verse 14. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. No hidden meaning here. This is really just a straightforward statement. Paul has every intention of making a visit to Ephesus. He wants to come and see the people there. Specifically, he wants to see Timothy, and he wants to do that in the near future. I hope to come to you before long. Of course, Paul knows probably better than most that oftentimes the Lord will alter travel plans. (laughs) So he doesn't say, I'm definitely coming next week. He says, I I plan on it, I'd like to, but the Lord may have other things for me. And, And remember, this letter would be read aloud to the church. And so as the church hears this, they hear several things. One, they hear Paul's personal investment in Timothy uh, as, as a, as a young pastor, as a leader in the church. And he's also letting the congregation know about the seriousness of the issues at hand. So, you know, a lot of people will read this and go, well, is, is Timothy having a leadership crisis? Well, maybe, but not necessarily. I think what Paul is, Paul is not necessarily saying, Timothy, you're a weak leader. I need you to be a good leader. It's encouragement to continue to be a good leader. I don't think Paul would have left him there if he was a weak leader. And so this is, this is encouragement both for Timothy personally and that you're hearing the words of an apostle before the church saying, follow this man, he's here to lead you to godliness, he's here to do the right thing. So Paul is investing Timothy with his authority in what we seem to see here as a challenging congregation. And, and the fact that an apostle might show up any day might keep you on your P's and Q's, right? Paul may be coming. And if Paul shows up, well, you know, we're not, he's not going to tell us exactly when he, he may show up. He wants to come soon. So the question is, from a historical perspective, is did Paul ever make it back to Ephesus? Well, I don't know. You don't know? Nobody knows. We're not sure because it's not in Scripture. But there's no indication that he ever did. If he did, it was probably a brief visit. But what, what do we know as we kind of jump back into the timeline? We do have other letters that Paul wrote around this time, particularly the letter to Titus. And Paul mentions in Titus chapter 3, verse 12 that he was in Nicopolis. He says, do your best to meet me in Nicopolis. Well, where is Nicopolis? Well, that's why I give you the map. Ephesus is over here. This is Asia Minor or Turkey. We go over here to Greece. Nicopolis is on the west coast of Greece. If we keep going up here, we'd get into Italy and Rome and all that this way. So he is probably over there or at least in that general area because we know 1 Timothy and Titus were written fairly close together. Tradition says that from there, Paul went west. Uh, maybe as far as Spain, that was his intention, that what he, that's what he says in Romans, and I think that's probably likely, but that's outside of the scope of Scripture. Remember when we end uh, the book of Acts, we are in Rome for the first Roman imprisonment. This stuff, 1st Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus happens after that imprisonment. During that time period, Paul travels on what we would call his fourth missionary journey, which is not recorded in Scripture, and then he finds himself back in Nero's hands in Second Timothy. All right, that's, that's kind of the timeline if you're kind of viewing it that way. Um, but it's unclear if Paul ever made this intended visit back to Ephesus or not. And he says that as much in verse 15, but in case I am delayed, he's, Paul knows delays. It's happened to him before. In case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. If you want a purpose statement for this section of the letter, maybe the entire letter, this is it. This is the the main idea. Why did he provide all the instructions he's given Timothy from chapter 2 into chapter 3? The answer is right here. So that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That this is how church is supposed to be. He talked about prayer. He talked about what men are to do, what women are to do, how you select elders, how deacons are selected. But also, I think what we can see here, once he brings in the household of God, and I want to break a lot of these phrases down so we know what he's talking about. What Paul is saying here is this is how born-again men and women are to behave in the New Testament church. This is the manual for the membership guide. If you're part of this body, you need to know these things. And so, because that's the statement, everything Paul instructs Timothy to do at Ephesus can be applied to all churches in all times. And, you know, I know most of us in this room don't struggle with that idea. But that's something that is attacked in other scholarship because we've talked about this a little bit with the elders and and females and those sorts of things. There are many attempts out there to limit the commands of this letter to a specific time period, perhaps a specific church, perhaps a specific circumstance. But when Paul says here, I want writing this so that you know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, that broadens the the scope of what he is able to apply this to. And it broadens it all the way to us. Like We are to do these same things that are listed in this letter. That word conduct, how one ought to conduct himself, the Greek word is honestrepho. It describes what we might call a person's way of life. The old King James word was conversation. Now, I know when we say conversation, we think we're speaking to each other. In the King James, when you heard conversation, it was your manner of life. It was how you conducted yourself. It's how people saw you and how you acted. It, it was your, your whole life, your character, but it often had to do with your relationships with others. It's how you interacted with one another. We see it used in a couple of different contexts here. In Ephesians 2, 3, you are married. Paul says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Talking about what we used to be before Christ redeemed us. We conducted ourselves. We were characterized by the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That was our conduct. That was our conversation. That's how we, were, we, we acted before Christ. In 1 Peter 1.17, Peter exhorts his people, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. <clears throat> so we, are, we, we were once conducting ourselves one way. We are now to conduct ourselves another way. If you're still conducting yourselves in that way, you may not be in the household of God. If you are in the household of God, this is how our lives are supposed to look. Not perfectionism, not sinlessness, No, but this is supposed to characterize what the, the life of the born-again believer looks like. It makes it clear that these directives are not just for church leaders. Could that be a temptation? He just talked about elders and deacons. Well, Well, certainly this applies to church leaders, but it's meant for every Christian that belongs to the church. If you are part of the household of God, if you're part of the church of the living God, this has to be applied to your own life. And Paul viewed the church as God's family, and we're going to talk about that in a second, because that's an important theological truth that comes in there that is often maybe, maybe run over in favor of other things. That when we say church, and we know this well, we don't just mean the building in which we meet it. Now, there's nothing wrong with calling this a church, right? But if there are no Christians here... It's just a building. The church is a body. The church is a temple. And so even when he uses the construction imagery here, the edifice imagery that he's going to bring in, he's talking about us. He's not talking about this. Now, we have a great place to meet, right? We have that. That's that's great. And and by the way, when you're in this house, you should still conduct yourself this way. But this household idea goes way beyond these walls right? It's not as if we put on a face while we're here and we can do whatever we want out there. This is the household of God. So he's not describing behavior suitable for the church building, like, you know, when you come in here, wear this, say this, dress this. No, nope, it's not that. It's the type of conduct fitting for one who is a member of God's family. And that brings us to that terminology, the household of God. And again, when we, if you read the King James, it says house of God. And we use that so freely to kind of describe the church. Maybe we're tempted to think about a church building. But again, it has a much broader uh, application. The Greek word there is oiko. Oiko is the household or the administration or the dispensation, different ways that is used. And theo is God, so the household of God. And, And so while these instructions might take place at the church house, the commands are to be followed by the household of God. So it's not conduct in the house of God, it's conduct by the household of God. Okay, Make sure we get our prepositions right in there. Remember in 1 Peter four seventeen, when Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin with what? The household of God. The exact same terminology here. Does he mean that one church that he visited that one time? No, this is the household of God. It begins with the family of God. And if it begins with us first, Peter says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? As Peter's saying, the, house, the household of God are those that obey the gospel of God. That's what characterizes it. So first and foremost, the household of God is a family made up of those who have been adopted into that household by the Father. And so I want to take a little bit of a, a break here and camp out for a second. Let's talk about adoption for a moment. Very important concept in terms of our salvation it's often left out of what we call the ordo salutis, which is a big fancy word for the order of salvation, right? And, and we know the words, the big words, and you've heard them before, and we talk about justification, right? The fact that you are made righteous in Christ at salvation. We talk about sanctification, the fact that we are being conformed to the image of Christ in this life, and then we talk about glorification, that glorious day when one day all this flesh gets thrown away and we, uh, we can reach uh, glorification in Christ. But what we miss sometimes is adoption is in that order. And adoption comes after justification. So I would want us to kind of think about it in that sense, that justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. Because if you are not adopted into the family of God, then sanctification is not happening. Because you don't have the Spirit, you don't have a relationship with the Heavenly Father, you don't have that. And so we need to understand that adoption idea. Similar terminology in Ephesians 2. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You used to be strangers and aliens. But you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Same words, just a different order. God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You see the same building imagery? In whom the whole building... Being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Peter would say we are living stones in the temple of God, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The Spirit lives in us because we are born again. Remember in Galatians 6.10, Paul talks about this. He says, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It has to start here. If we can't love each other, we will never love those outside. If we can't show mercy to one another, we'll never take that to the unbelieving world. So we might be bold enough to say here, God's household is better understood as God's family. We are God's family. And don't miss how profound that is, how impactful that is, and the implications that come along with that. And for starters, it means we are in eternal relationship. I mean, we understand this from an earthly perspective. If you have a brother or sister... Even if you are estranged from that brother or sister, they don't stop being your brother and sister. That is an undeniable fact. So now let's take that to a spiritual level, and it means if we are in God's family, we are, we are in eternal relationship with the Father, but we are also in eternal relationship with one another. We are always brothers and sisters. Why? Because you can't lose your salvation, I can't lose my salvation, because Christ holds that. The Father holds that. And so we will always be brothers and sisters, and so... Let's think about it this way. It, it, we are going to spend eternity together. If we're irritated with each other all the time, eternity might not be much fun, <laughs> right? Like we, you, I, I could, you know, especially if you grew up with some brothers and sisters, perhaps you didn't love your brothers and sisters all the time. You think, I spent spend eternity with these people. You know, it's a little, no, no, that's not how we feel. We have an eternal relationship with one another. And so it, the, in, the inviting idea is that we will be together worshiping the Father in eternity. That, that's what we will do. And so uh, the, the, the happy fact of all this is in that in heaven, it will be the redeemed and perfected, glorified family with whom we live with forever. You know, it, now, I don't, I don't think we'll be irritated by little things like that because we'll be focused on the glory that's in front of us. But that's an eternal relationship. So if you're in Christ tonight, we have eternity together. starts now, but it will have it together. Vodi Bakum said, all of God's children are adopted. Right? We've talked about this uh, in a different way. God has no spiritual grandchildren. All of God's children are adopted. Why is that? Because God took the initiative to adopt you into his family. You didn't join the You, you can't just go knock on somebody's door and say, I want to live with you now. <laughs> they have to adopt you. They have to make the choice to bring you into their home. So what is adoption? In, in uh, his systematic theology, Uh, Grudem defines it like this, an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. That's what adoption means. So what do we gain from being part of God's household? Well, we now have access to God as our heavenly father. As our heavenly father, not just as our creator. He is the creator of all things. We have access to God as our heavenly father. Two, we are now led by the Holy Spirit because his spirit indwells us. Three, one we don't talk about too much because it's not all that fun sometimes is we gain the discipline of the Father. That the Father loves us enough to discipline us and correct our course to move more in line with his will. And four, and there's more than this, but here's four to offer tonight. We're given a deep and intimate relationship with others within the family of God. We are reconciled to God. We are reconciled to one another through the blood of Christ. The point is what we do here. What they did in Ephesus in those days was family business. That, what, when we get together, we are doing family business. And what's that mean? And we, again, we understand this on an on a earthly family level. Let's extend this because how much more important is it on the eternal level that when we get together, we do family business, family members work towards the same goal. Family members are committed to the same things. We encourage one another. We're thankful when other members are doing well. We come alongside members when they're not doing well. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. And, and, and even if we do that in a distant level, we're not doing what the church is supposed to do. There's supposed to be an intimacy here. There's supposed to be a family dynamic. And, and let's put that on, on the spiritual level. We understand this from an earthly level, but the family dynamics... How many, guys, how many of you grew up wanting to be just like your dad? Well, that's what you should do in the spiritual family. I want to be just like dad. I want to be just like my older brother. Think of Christ, our Father, or God, our Father, Christ, our brother. Right? That—that's the idea. We have people we emulate within the family, and our father just happens to be the creator of the universe, and our brother just happens to be the Messiah. That's, that's who we emulate. So we imitate our earthly fathers. How much more should we emulate our perfect heavenly father? We are in the family of God. And that household of God, to build on it, Paul does a little bit more, is the church of the living God. So he's building this, this great image of what the household of God is. It's the church of the living God. It's the reason why we conduct ourselves the way that we do. Because we represent the living God. We are the assembly of the living God. And just talk about the word there, and this is probably one of those Greek words that you know, even if you don't know Greek. Ekklesia. Ekklesia is the Greek word for, that is often translated church. Now, here's what we need to understand about the word ekklesia. It doesn't mean church. It means assembly. It means gathering. The question is, why are you gathering? The question is, why are you coming together? And so when we see ecclesia, that is the word that is used in, in the New Testament to describe the church. It is also, by the way, the word that is used in Acts 19 when there is a riot in this city of Ephesus. Remember, great is Artemis of the Ephesians when the silversmiths riot over Paul's ministry there. And that group that rioted in the city square was called an ecclesia. Okay? That, they weren't a church. They were a gathering of people that were committed to violence against the church. So an ecclesia is just a gathering of people. The question is, what characterizes this ecclesia? Why are we gathering? Why are we an assembly? And Paul says we are the assembly of the living God. That's the title we carry with us when we come together. He defines our gathering. He makes our existence possible, and we gather to honor him. And and why is it the church of the living God? Because the church is alive because our God is alive. And we live because he lives. That's an Old Testament term because in the Old Testament, Yahweh was often called the living God. Why is that an appropriate way to describe who our God is? Because it emphasized the deadness of the idols. Think of those passages in Isaiah in the 40s where he talks about the idols and they're just wood. And you create an idol out of the wood and the, that and then you bow down and worship it. Like that, that, we are talking about the living God in contrast to wood and, and things like that. Idols that are there, dead things. They don't talk, they don't see, they can't hear. God is the only immortal God, He's the only source of life. So, in Paul's immediate context, what's He dealing with in Ephesus? People that are putting forth false teachings, people that are putting forth other gospels. And He's, like, he's saying, Look, look at the false gods, look at the dead doctrine that these men are teaching. And he's saying, we are God's family. We are the assembly and gathering of the living God. That assembly is what we call the church. And now, what is the church? This is all in one verse. Paul can pack it in there. We are the pillar and the support of truth. Household of God, the church of the living God, which is the pillar and support of truth. So now we get back to this building imagery again. In the ancient world, These buildings would often have pillars. Now, I know we still have buildings with pillars, but most of the buildings you go into nowadays don't have pillars out front, okay? unless you go to the White House or something like that. But we do see these pillars. What do pillars do? Well, in a functional way, they support the roof. (laughs) If the pillars come down, the whole roof comes down. They they rest on the foundation of the building. And so Paul pictures the church as a temple, and, and he indicates that it's the very foundation that supports the truth of the Christian faith. Where will one go to hear the gospel? The church of the living God. Who will they hear it from? The household of God. It's the only place it's available. Can't find that truth anywhere else. It must be coming from the church. And why does he use this imagery in this letter? Because in Ephesus, they know their pillars. Pillars would have been very common in, in the ancient world everywhere, but even more so in Ephesus. Why? And we talked about this way back at the beginning. But there is a great temple in Ephesus, That temple is the temple of Artemis. Remember, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. If you want to impress me afterwards, come tell me the other six. But um, Pointless knowledge, but I kind of like those kinds of things. Seven ancient wonders of the world. It had 127 pillars in the temple of Artemis. Every one of them was a gift from a king. So the kings of the ancient world funded this temple and put it up. All of them were made of marble. Some were studded with jewels. Some were overlaid with gold. They all had this uniqueness to them. And the people of Ephesus knew very well how beautiful a pillar was, how beautiful a temple was that was made up of these pillars, how essential those pillars are just to a building, but how beautiful these would be. And that helps us understand why Paul is using this imagery here, that this is not some crumbling building. Propped up by makeshift pillars. He says this is the pillar and the support of truth. Pillar is stulos. So you can kind of see style in that. And if you remember those ancient pillars, they had those, those tops on them, those, those capitals. Uh, Corinthian capitals and Doric capitals. And they all had different styles to them. And that made them beautiful. Again, they would be overlaid with gold and different things like that. And it was also the, the support. The word support there, hedrioma, it can be translated buttress. So we've got the beauty of the pillar, and we've got the functionality, strength of the pillar. Both aspects are here. When I hear buttress, I just think of Notre Dame, um, uh, more the hunchback, but, you know, that whole thing. Uh, but a, a hedrioma, a support, was functional and immovable. This is not something you go, well, I'll move that pillar over here. No, this pillar is set, it's in a foundation, and without it, the wall crumbles, So again, the two aspects of this I really want you to kind of grab here is the functionality and the strength of it and the majesty and the beauty of it. And we are called to be both. The church is to do both of those things. The building is solid. It's majestic. The pillars are a symbol of strength, truth held firmly in place, objective truth that does not move, does not change, but it's also a place of beauty because the gospel truth is beautiful above all other things. And when you preach the gospel, you know what happens? Men are drawn to it. Men see the beauty of it. They recognize the beauty of it. They marvel at it. And so, again, I think that illustrates our dual purpose as the household of God. We're to hold fast to the truth of Scripture, the fundamentals of the faith, which he's going to tell us about in verse 16. We're going to talk about the fundamentals of the faith there. And that creates a building that stands up to storms, that stands the test of time, And at the same time, the church is to be a compelling and beautiful in comparison to all the other entities that are around it. We're not to look like the world. You know, here's a little sidebar, a little pet peeve kind of thing. The 21st century church is people build new churches. Now, I'm not saying a church has to look a certain way. And I'm not saying you can't meet in temporary locations and all that kind of thing because we are a body, right? But I'm talking about when people design a church in 2022, their whole objective is not to look like a church. That's the modern movement. Let's try to make it, let's have a church, but we don't want anyone to be able to associate our building with a church. You know, and so there's this, I don't want to look like this. No, there's, there's something about us that makes us stand out from other places, and it's not just a cross stuck on a wall. It's something more than that. And I think that the, the desire to look more like a worldly building, potentially sinful when that's the, that's the idea. All right, where was I? I went off and I lost my place in my notes. Um, <clears throat> that, that we are to be different, A- and the way in which we live our lives, how we conduct ourselves within the household of God, how we proclaim truth, draws people to hear good news. That's, that's the idea. Now, sometimes we will stand on that truth and people will walk away. They will be offended by the gospel. Christ told us that would happen too. But through that proclamation of the gospel, people will come to hear the truth. They will they will marvel at that. The temple of Artemis was beautiful; it was majestic. Again, one of the seven ancient wonders, which meant people traveled from the ancient all over the ancient world just to get a glimpse of this place. But it pales in comparison to the Church of the Living God. That's what Paul's trying to say. You got pillars up here. You got a temple that everybody goes up to. Now we're the Church of the Living God. We're the pillar in the support of truth. They got pillars. We got a pillar that will not ever move. That's the idea. And remember, we go to Revelation, and Paul, or John uses that same imagery, or more appropriately, Jesus uses that same imagery, that I will make them a pillar in my temple, and they'll never go out from it again. That's, this is great imagery. And so let's say one more thing here. Make no mistake that Paul has in mind here the local church. This is a local church idea. How do we know that? Because that's where this stuff happens. You know, is there, and you've heard me say this before, is there a universal church? Sure there is. We have brothers in Christ in China and India and Japan and all over the world, but you won't see them this side of eternity. You'll never interact with them. You won't know who they are. We'll spend eternity with them in front of the throne of Christ. It'll be glorious, but you don't get to do ministry with them on this earth. And so where do, where do you do ministry? In the local church. Where do you exercise your spiritual gifts? In the local church. Where do you you edify one another in a local church? Where do you encourage one another in a local church? Where are you convicted of sin in a local church? It's always the local church. Now, I'm unapologetically a local church guy, but that's what Scripture teaches. If you go through the New Testament and look at all the uses of ecclesia, you'll see two or three that are talking about the universal church. Everything else is the local church. Paul was a local church guy, too. That's why he's planting them everywhere. One commentator put it this way, each local church has, in it, has it in its power to support and strengthen the truth by its witness to the faith and by the lives of its members, how they conduct themselves in the household of God. All right, verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes in and listen, and we'll talk about the rest of this in just a second. He sings a little hymn here at the end. It is an early Christian hymn. But this verse is important because what Paul is saying, by common confession, and I'll break that word down in just a second, but by common confession, this is what all Christians believe. If you are born again, if you claim Christ, we share this common confession. And then he's going to go in and lay these things out. We might say that these are the fundamentals of the faith uh, in terms of what we must believe. And, And it's poetic. Again, probably an early hymn of the church, And what we have here, the family of God collectively and unanimously singing a hymn to our Heavenly Father. We all believe these same things. And we don't believe them in passing. We believe them with a redeemed and regenerate heart. That's what we believe because this is the truth. A.W. Tozer said, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Programs, philosophies, we might agree with that in time. We might be able to bond over a sports team. We might be able to do those things, but that's not a standard. That, that holds us together for eternity. That's what he's talking about here. Listening to the word of God alone is a good thing. Singing to God alone, at least for most of us, um, is a good thing. But singing to God together and hearing his word preached together is better. It's better. And, and we experienced this for a while in 2020, didn't we? Is, is watching church on a screen church? No. You can't be a church on your couch by yourself. You can be a believer, we, we, can, we, we, we did what we had to do for a period of time, but ask all the elders about this, as soon as we had a door to open back up, we wanted to get back together because you can't do church that way. You, you, this is a, there is a corporate idea. We are saved individually, we come to Christ individually, our faith is individual, but if you're doing church without a corporate side to that, you're missing what the local church is. That this is where it's done. Our hearing of the word, our singing intensify when we're with brothers and sisters in whom the Holy Spirit also dwells. That's the unity he's talking about. Martin Luther said, At home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. Hey, and I don't exactly picture Martin Luther as an emotional guy. But that's what He said, Okay, a fire is kindled when he's in the local church. All right, back to that hymn. By, by common confession, the word there is uh, homo leguminos. Uh, you can see the word there, homo same. You see logos in the middle. We have the same word. So by common confession or by the same word. If you have a King James that says, and without controversy. So that's not a real literal translation, but it communicates what it is, right? We, we are in complete agreement with this confession. Uh, The ESV just says, we confess. But this is the same confession. By the same confession, he says, the great is the mystery of godliness. Unanimous consent. All Christians believe this. If you do not, you are not of the household of God. And he says, great is the mystery of godliness. We talked about mystery last week, mysterion, a revealing of something that wasn't evident before which in this case is, is believing Jews and Gentiles, redeemed by the Spirit, pursuing godliness together. That's the mystery of this whole thing. And then godliness, that word godliness again. Beia is the Greek word. Paul uses it all over this epistle. It's the same as chapter 2, verse 2, when he said that we want to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. It's that same word there. We'll see it uh, twice in chapter 4. He'll use it four times in chapter 6. Paul thinks godliness is important. So we keep coming back to this idea. Great is the mystery of godliness. I think we could pull other scriptures in and where Paul is saying there is no one righteous. We cannot pursue God on ourselves and this by ourselves. And the mystery is that God has made a way for us to pursue godliness. And not just individually but corporately. That we are able to do this as a living group, a living body, a living temple, and pursue godliness. The godliness here has the definite article. So it's actually the godliness. Great is the mystery of the godliness. What does he mean? It's the devotion. It's the piety that comes only through Christ. It's, it's this, this pursuit of righteousness that comes only through Christ. The mystery is that God would redeem his people by grace through faith so that they may be more like his son so that they might be conformed to that image. They might pursue God-likeness in character, something that was impossible before. And all that is built on the foundation of this confession. This is the hymn. This is the confession. And he gives us six things there, that Christ was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Again, many scholars think, and I agree, that this was an early Christian hymn because there's a parallelism in each line. Probably in your scripture you might even have it presented that way in your Bible. And we have six distinct statements with Christ as the subject of each line. So each one of these applies to Jesus. And each line begins, you may not see this in your Bible, but it begins with a verb in the Greek aorist passive tense. So they're all in the same tense as they go down down the, the, the hymn. And they're all followed by a prepositional phrase, whether it's in or by or on. And there's a deliberate, what, what, if you're an English nerd like me, it's assonance. Okay? Remember, alliteration is the same word to start a line. Okay? Assonance is the same vowel sound or consonant sound throughout the whole thing. Okay, that's what we have here. And it's marked at the end, and I'll read it to you in the Greek so you can hear it. But if you hear it in the Greek, you get the rhythm. And so it's, uh, and, and you won't know any of these words, but just listen to so you can hear the, the assonance. Afanarotha in Sarkai, Edekaiotha in Pneumati, Ophthay, Angelois, Ekerukthay in Ethnesen, epithuste in cosmo, and analemthe in doxate. You hit the the, 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 the. So if that was in English, we would understand that, but we have it in Greek, but we get that assonance. Now the question is, how is this organized? And this is a bit in the weeds, but do we have six individual statements? Are there three couplets? Are there two triplets? You know, that's what everybody wants to know. Uh, It doesn't really matter, but here's what I think. I think we get a dichotomy every two. So I think this it works well to go two, two, two. And so what do you see? Two things in those that are poles apart. Look at the first two, the flesh and the spirit, the physical and the spiritual. The second one, angels, those closest to God, nations or Gentiles, those furthest from God. And then finally, the world, the present sphere of existence, and glory, the future state of existence. And I think that's a good way to look at how this is. All right, let me go through each one of those one by one he is revealed in the flesh that's an easy one it's jesus's incarnation flesh the greek word is sarks it's a reference to true human nature usually sarks is a bad thing you know you pursue the flesh those kinds of things it's us it's who we are but in this case what it's saying is jesus actually became a man he took on flesh it's john 1:14 okay revealed in the flesh then it says he was vindicated by the Spirit. A little more difficult to understand what that means, because vindicated is, is dakaio. It can mean justified. It can mean, it can mean be made righteous. Well, we know that's not the way to understand this, because Christ didn't need to be made righteous. Christ didn't need to be justified. It can also mean acknowledged or vindicated, like it's translated here. I think that's the best way, and I think we can apply it to Romans 1.4, where Paul says, "...who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead." According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, and I talked about this fairly recently, right? Jesus didn't become the son of God at the resurrection. He was acknowledged and confirmed as the son of God at the resurrection. He's been the son for all eternity. He never ceased, never stopped, never became. He's always been, he's always been the second person in the Trinity. But we knew he was who he said he was when the resurrection occurred. And that happened through the Spirit. Anytime life is given in the Scripture, by the way, Holy Spirit. Hey, go back to Genesis 1. The Spirit gives life. That's physical life at creation. That's new life when you're born again. Look at John 3 and talk, see how Jesus is talking about the Spirit, blowing where it wants to. Right? The Spirit is what's happening there. And so in the same way that the Spirit gave us, regenerated us, the Spirit brought the Son of God back from the dead, vindicating him, announcing him as who he said he was. All right, he was seen by the angels, probably the most difficult phrase in the hymn, because we're going, of course he was seen by the angels. What is this a reference to? The question is, is this before, during, or after the incarnation? Because we could make an argument that Jesus was seen by angels in all three of those circumstances, right? Is it angels like Hebrews 1.6? And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Remember the angels in the field that announced the birth of Christ. Um, is it, and we can go through, uh, the, the angels nurse him to health after the wilderness temptations. They're at the tomb for the resurrection. Angels are, I, you know, and what I say to that is, of course angels are hanging around Christ. Like, that's who they serve. Of course they're going to be there. And that, that's, that's that. Is it fallen angels, like in Colossians 2.15? We also see some of this in Ephesians. But when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, talking about those, those angels that, that, that have dominion, those fallen angels, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. So is, is this the, the, the announcement of the resurrection? Remember, we, if you were here when we went through Ephesians, we talked about that. You know, Christ kind of takes a victory lap you know, and, and proclaims to those spirits, you have been defeated. It is done. Right? That whole thing. Well, both of those statements are true. He reveals himself to angels in both ideas. I think the angels worshiping Christ at his resurrection is the best understanding, mainly because we're kind of following a chronological train of thought here. And so uh, it keeps the hymn in chronological order if we do that. And so what we would have is the first three lines of this hymn cover Jesus' incarnation, resurrection, and glorification. We see all three of those in the first three lines. All right, keep going. Christ was proclaimed among the nations. Again, not that difficult. Proclamation of the gospel worldwide. Believed on in the world. Again, whoever believes shall be saved regardless of ethnic identity. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, male, female, slave or free. If you put your faith in Christ, you will be saved. And that happens in the world, which again is a fulfillment of what Jesus told them that they would be witnesses to the end of the earth in Acts eight. And then finally, taken up in glory. Acts 111b says this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That word taken is the same word that's used three times in Acts 1 to describe the ascension. And glory, doxa there, presence of God. Glory is always the presence of God. And who alone gets the glory? Only God. So if Jesus is taken up in glory, what does that tell us? Jesus was very God. That's what's communicated there. So what we have is incarnation, resurrection, glorification, the the idea that he is now worshipped as the resurrected, risen Christ and Messiah. And it might seem that the ascension is out of order, but if we talked about proclaimed among the nations and believed in the world, that is what Jesus gave as instructions to his disciples after the resurrection, didn't he? Matthew 28, Great Commission, you're going to take this and make disciples. Acts 1.8, you're going to take this from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So, proclaimed among the nations and believed in the world, was set into motion before the ascension. Finally, he's taken up into glory, and we await his return. Back to that glory piece reminded me of John 17 when Jesus prayed to the Father. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Again, that prayer is absolute blasphemy unless he's God. A man, We do not pray to God, God, glorify me. Glorify me just like you. I want to be on your level. I was with you. Now I'm here. I want to be back with you. No, what's he saying? Very clearly, he's saying, I am God, right? We are one. I and my Father are one. Glorify me together with yourself. We serve a God who does not share glory. Was Jesus blaspheming? No, he was saying exactly who he was and what he claimed to be was true. He was the Son of God. So what's Paul's point here? He's using the hymn as an example of the mystery of godliness the church proclaimed. That's what we take with us into the world. We take with us the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the glorification of Christ. We are obedient to his commands in taking that to the ends of the earth and the fact that he dwells on glory, in glory with the Father as we speak. The mystery relates to the incarnation, the resurrection of Christ, the church's proclamation. I think that's what's summed up in the hymn. And so by explaining the revelation of Christ and his gospel, Paul is setting himself in contrast with the false teachers, in contrast. With the message. Again, he's laying down this idea that I know they're preaching that, but if they're not preaching this, they're not of the household of God. You must believe this. This is the gospel. This is what we believe. This is what we preach. Anything more or less is not the gospel. Anyone more or less is not Christ. And in the next verse, in two weeks, Paul's gonna dive into some of that apostasy. That he's gonna go in and say, This is what they are saying, and this is what we need to do about it. And so, you know, oftentimes we'll sit around and, and, and kind of talk about this idea. What do you need to believe to be a Christian, right? It, it, are, there, are there things that we can disagree with and still be together in the household of faith? And certainly there are as we go down the tier, but there's a line somewhere. And what Paul is saying is the line is not here. You can't say that Christ wasn't really of the flesh. He didn't really take on flesh. Okay, then you're not a Christian. Christ is not really God in the flesh. Okay, then we're not, we're not together. Because a Mormon would say he's Christian all day long and deny that that's the truth. You cannot say those things and still be held in the household of faith. <clears throat> so we have to find that line to say, this is the pillar and the support of truth that we will not budge on. You know, We're not talking about mode of baptism or Bible translations. We're talking about the fundamentals of who Jesus Christ was. And if that is changed, Paul says, you're not in the church of the living God. You're not the pillar in support of truth. You're denying that. And again, chapter 4, he'll dive in on those guys pretty hard. So again, the church in God's program is this. We are the household of God. We are the family of God adopted by our heavenly Father. Eternal, eternal relationship with him and with one another. We are the church of the living God, a local assembly that proclaims the truth of the gospel and ministers to one another. And we are the pillar and the support of truth, both strong and settled in a foundation with Christ as our cornerstone, the the apostles' uh, teaching as our foundation, the gospel is an unchanging thing, and we are the, the pillar of that truth. We are beautiful because we proclaim the most beautiful truth in creation. And we're brought into being through verse 16, through the incarnate, resurrected, and exalted Christ. If he is not incarnate, resurrected, or exalted, he is not the Christ that saves That's the picture that Paul's painting of the church, and it is a beautiful one. So let's wrap up with this idea. Those who belong to the household of God, one, distinguish themselves by a lifestyle of holiness, thereby demonstrating the reality of their faith. Not perfection, not sinlessness, a pursuit of holiness, a characteristic of forgiveness, repentance, understanding of the gospel, understanding of scripture, applying that to our lives, fruit of the Spirit on display. And number two, back to what we were just talking about, those who belong to the household of God have fixed, committed, and biblical beliefs about Christ and his gospel, including incarnation, resurrection, and glorification. We may come to different understandings of second and third tier issues as we study the scripture more. I mean, I'm sure there's something that when you came to Christ, you had an idea of something, you studied the scripture, and you came to a different conclusion. But it wasn't about the deity of Christ. It wasn't about the physical resurrection. It wasn't about God's place in heaven. It wasn't about those things because if it is, then you don't know the gospel. That's what Paul's trying to say. And so the magnificent Christ of this confession, the confession of verse 16, makes possible the godly conduct that Paul is requiring from Christians in verses 14 and 15. And all those verses that that preceded it. So what characterizes us? Behavior. Behavior. That, that reflects the godliness that God has given us the ability to pursue. What makes that possible? Christ. And the Christ of Scripture. The Christ predicted in the Old Testament. The Christ that came in the New Testament. The Christ that is promised to come again at the end of that book. That's, that's the picture of the church. And I think that's, a, that's just a beautiful picture of who we are to be. You know, if we get caught up in just the practicality of it all, we end up just teaching behavior modification. Now, There's nothing wrong with behavior modification per se, but behavior modification is temporary. What you need is a changed heart. What you need is to believe the gospel, because if you do not believe the gospel, you will not have the spirit and godliness will be impossible. And what I am doing by preaching a practical message of behavior modification is actually putting a larger burden on your back that you'll never be able to fulfill. And that's the problem with a lot of preaching today is that it becomes this one of the popular things in in church in the 21st century. You're not a pastor, you're a life coach. I'm not a life coach. (laughs) I can tell you who can give you the life, but I'm not a life coach. Because it's just, well, if you do this and you do this, then you'll be able to achieve this in your life. Well, what happens when you fall? What happens when your flesh gets in the way, which it inevitably will? You know, we can avoid sin for days, weeks, months, maybe even years. But if it's not real change, if you don't have a new heart, you 're going to fall on your face because you're doing it in your own strength, and so it's not hey, do good it's no you are able to do good because of what he's done now pursue that, pursue that, live in that reality, cling to that reality, live on that truth because that truth doesn't change, and it is finished, and if you believe that then this is this is a, this is not just a possibility it's a guarantee that when, when our time on this earth ends, we will be with him. And when, when this world comes to an end, we will be in glory with our heavenly father and our savior. That, that's the truth of the church. It's not just a place you come for an hour on Sunday. It's, this is God's family in action, showing the truth of the scripture and worshiping and proclaiming the truth of God together as one, as a corporate body. It's a beautiful picture. All right, let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the church that Jesus died for, the church whose blood He has uh, He has covered, that His church that He has bought with that blood. Lord, we glorify you tonight. I I pray for uh, continued just strength and and perspective on the truth of what what was accomplished through Christ on the cross, through His resurrection, through His ascension, Lord, through His promised return. Uh, These fundamentals of the faith, we can get into intellectualism with it. We can get into these theological discussions. Lord, may it impact our lives. May it impact our our ministries, our prayer life, our time in the Word, our worship. Uh, And may you get the glory for what you've done. And not that we've done, but what you've done. And we want to serve you well. I pray you'd give us opportunities to do that, Lord. Convict us of sin. Purify us. Give us clean hands and pure hearts so that we can do just that. uh, And glorify your name in this earth while you've got us here. Uh, until we spend eternity with you, and we give you the praise and glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.